diversity is a celebration. It is literally the most interesting, fascinating, amazing opportunity of our lifetimes. And it's happening like right now all around us. It's all around us at work. So we can look at that as a chore or we can look at it as a beautiful blessing. Welcome everyone to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Jennifer Brown. Jennifer is a leading diversity and inclusion expert, best-selling author, and host of the incredible podcast, The Will to Change, which is a show that uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. She's also the founder and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, and her workplace strategies have been employed by some of the world's top Fortune 500 companies. I'm talking businesses like Walmart, Microsoft, and Starbucks. And as a successful LGBT entrepreneur, she's also been featured in media, including the New York Times, Bloomberg, Business Week, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and many, many more than I could possibly name in this intro. But most exciting of all, by the time you're hearing this interview, Jennifer has just last week released her new book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive. I'm so excited for you to hear all about Jennifer's work as a diversity expert and really how we dive deep in this interview into the topic of you know, why diversity and inclusion is so important and how to really reframe our thinking around this topic. But before we jump in, I want to encourage any of you who are new to the show to make sure you're following me on Instagram. That's the best place to stay on top of what's going on with the podcast, find out who my guests are each week, and to connect with me personally. So with that, here's my conversation with Jennifer Brown. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm excited to have you here. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, so let's dive straight into your story. I would love for you to just set the stage with you know, what was life like for you growing up and what were the beliefs around money and success that were instilled in you as a child? Well, given my uh, Gen X status, I, um, I had a mom that didn't work technically, but was hugely involved philanthropically. Um, she ran at one point all the Girl Scout troops for my sisters and I and me. She's, um, I like to say she was the COO, but didn't know it. And the world, um, you know, that wasn't a possibility for her. And so, and in her generation, she's in her eighties now, but she taught me how to be organized. <laughs> and I think as a first kid, firstborn kid, um, in the birth order and a very, um, very much a people pleaser, which I am. And I continue to be to this day and wrestle with that. Cause it's not always the greatest thing. However, I, I followed that and learned a lot from it and, and emulated her ability to organize, keep a lot of lists going, like basically be the, the, the administrator of the household. So I, I really carry that discipline with me to this day. And so I do think I had sort of a, a professional role model, but it wasn't in the way that perhaps would have been equally useful, which would have been to have a, a same-sex parent um, building their professional career in a way that I could then turn around and emulate. I didn't exactly have that. 
So I had to figure that all that out for myself. Um, and my dad is a physician and um, he was, you know, often business, business things are not what physicians typically are gifted at. <laughs> However, you know, he, he wasn't, he wasn't bad at all of it. And, you know, most importantly, I would say I learned my ability to be empathetic and listen. Um, the bedside manner piece, he does really well. You would hope doctors do. But um, the ability to connect with people, be a listener, be a sort of gentle um, advocate for people, be able to receive people's stories, and also be able to be a really good public speaker. He really enjoyed people. He loved being um, in medical associations and president of the Scoliosis Research Society. And he went all, the, all over the world and spoke on that disease. So I think that I'm this, as a business owner, I'm a blend of the organizational sort of operational acumen of my mother. And the people orientation and the empathy of my father. And we grew up, my, I often think, you know, white culture, if you'll forgive, forgive me for saying that, but I study cultural diversity. So, you know, this is the thing. Um, in my culture anyway, it was very much, um, it was a frugal culture. And so I really think of my money behaviors were, um, you know, waste not, want not, only take what you need, um, live a very, you know, austere uh, lifestyle. Like in my twenties, I, I probably didn't crack making over forty or fifty thousand dollars until a year until I was like thirty-five. I was thinking about that the other day because I was an advocate, I was a nonprofit person, I was an artist and an opera singer. Um, and so literally I had to kind of scrap everything together for many, many years through multiple income streams and a lot of it was administrative tasks. So um, you know, I really did a lot with a little. But I was happy, you know, I was so grateful to be able to do um, advocacy work, to do things I was passionate about, like my art and my music. And um, when I eventually landed then in corporate, it was just totally different, of course. And then that, that began a different phase of my, my relationship with money and my need for income and the revenue I expected. And now I supervise a team of 25. And um, boy, our payroll is a pretty, pretty scary thing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. So we're yeah. playing a very big game now and it's very different. Than it was right, right. I mean, it's so interesting how these these beliefs, these kind of subconscious thoughts about money that we pick up as a child, you know, just take what you need, waste not, want not, you know, those tend to show up for us as adults until we really look at them critically and and reevaluate those beliefs. So I think that's really interesting. And something else that you said really stuck out to me, which was this idea of representation, right? I mean, you didn't grow up with a mother who was, you know, entrepreneurial and, you know, neither did I. And I think that representation is something that is so important and something that we need to be deliberate about and, and really seek out. Um, and, you know, I'll share an, an example. I actually went to an all girls high school. And what I realized, not so much at the time, but I think since, is that the reason that, you know, all girls education is so powerful is that, you know, it's a, it's a woman who's the president of the robotics team and of, you know, speech and debate and, you know, all of these things, like there's, there's just no limits because, you know, representation is everywhere. And so what I'm curious, Jennifer, is, you know, when it comes to diversity, it really works in the same way. So, you know, is there a story behind how you were able to, you know, turn your passion for diversity and inclusion into a career? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because I've been out since I was 22 as LGBTQ. So I came out when I was a senior in college. And so that kind of sets you on a certain path where you realize uh, my life is going to be different. There is no script for me. 
income wise, I'm not going to be able to rely on, I mean, may not be able to rely on anyone, certainly not a man. And I had been raised in a very different way than that. And so it was a really big departure for me from all that was familiar and all that I had been kind of expected to become. And that has money implications, career implications, self-sufficiently, self-sufficiency implications. And now today, like I'm, I'm really the breadwinner in my family, um, which is myself and my partner who does nonprofit advocacy work. So it's just so unexpected in so many ways. <laughs> what it, what it kind of required me to do, which was to find, to discover how am I going to pay for my life? What is my career going to be not determined by anybody else? What is my gender role going to be in this society? When I hadn't seen any role models, you're absolutely right. I mean, I had zero. I was the oldest child, small family. I had nobody. And I went to a liberal arts college and I was never more confused graduating from that than, than you know, um, thinking, what in the world am I supposed to do in this life? You know, how can I be of service? And of course, so I just kind of went into nonprofit um, because I knew at the very least I, would, I needed to make a difference with what I did. I mean, I knew that clearly. And I also knew I loved to sing. And so I moved to New York, became an opera singer, like trained, lost my voice subsequently, had some surgeries. It was a nightmare. And then had to kind of reinvent into the field of HR, which honestly saved me. I mean, it gave me a place to land after um, losing this performance career. And I loved it a lot. And I was like, you know, this is the people side of the business world. And I wasn't a business person. <laughs> Um, and I was barely a, a newly minted HR person, but really starting again at the coordinator level, I mean, really low level admin. But I did feel I had found my field. And then within that, I pivoted into facilitation, which is developing, um, leading uh, adult learning in the corporate classroom. So teaching the whole soft skills catalog, like presentation skills and business writing and time management. And we teach what we need to learn. So I, you know, I really benefited from teaching time management classes, I'll say. Um, and I'm like ruthless about time now. But um, so diversity, though, came back around because I got laid off from corporate. I decided to start my own company. I'd wa- I wanted to be an external voice to influence systems. I thought that was a better role for me than working for someone. And I have some issues with authority. So it was probably better than <laughs> I was the boss. Most so entrepreneurs do. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a rebel as, as conventional as I might look. Um, and I need, I need freedom. I mean, that is honestly my most prized thing in life. So, um, yeah, so I started my own company 12 years ago and originally we were in leadership and team development and coaching. But then as an LGBT person, I kept being exposed to all this amazing advocacy work that was going on inside corporations, right? My friends were all kind of pushing their companies to change their policies and be more overt about their support of the LGBT community, get a hundred percent on an index called the Corporate Equality Index, which is something we all measure companies on. Then I discovered there were chief diversity officers and there were diversity functions and there was something called unconscious bias training. You know, I didn't know any of this existed. So I decided I wanted to pivot from the leadership and team development space into DNI. And this was like eight, nine years ago. So it was before, it really is such a hot topic now, but it was a little back then. And I, I did this by even though I was the CEO, I started to bring people in that knew a lot more about it than I did. And I would sit in the back of the room. I'd take a lot of notes. I would, I just t- had to become a student on the ground of it because it's one of those topics you can't really go to school to study. It's not a lot of, there's not a lot of programs for it. And there's not a lot of books about how do you apply the trade of DEI as a consultant, either you know, internally with your job or externally as, as someone like me. 
So we pivoted and I really, it felt that everything was very aligned when I did that because I could bring my personal story to my work, but it could also enhance my ability to consult. And also it gave me a voice as an authority, as a thought leader in the space. You know, it gave me that credibility because not only did I sort of intellectually know everything I was talking about, but it was really like a personally experienced piece of what I do. And so um, it was a perfect fit. And since then, the company has grown subsequently because I think that alignment in me has really come together. And I can, I can honestly bring my full self to work now in a way that I talk about the need to bring our full selves to work in every single company I speak in. Right, right. You know, I think it's so interesting how you talked about, you know, being confused as you left school. What am I going to do? And it's so funny how, you know, I hear, I've heard from so many guests how, you know, they, they just charge forward into their career, kind of taking each next step as it presents themselves. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh my gosh, this is it. You know, I've, I've found my thing, my calling, you know, the thing that really feels aligned with me as a person. And that seems to be the, you know, the thing that allows them to springboard into just, unbelievable levels of success and fulfillment too that you know you don't have when you're just kind of going through the motions taking each you know career step as it as it appears absolutely and i just wish more people could find that sweet spot sooner or ever i think a lot of people go through life and never really would describe their career this way you know so and i think it's in all of us to achieve that but it does take you know it does take Courage, um, economic means, you know, to leave a job to say I'm so miserable, I just can't stand it anymore. Like, I mean, that requires some financial abilities and flexibility, um, support, courage <laughs> to really like stick it out for what you actually want and what you think would bring you joy versus sort of the day to day that we get swept up in just as a, as a matter of habit or necessity. So I always, I always think I was very privileged because you know I could make those moves and I could take some risks. And I had always things to fall back on. And then I'm very aware that a lot of people don't. So I always try to add that piece because I'm so, so grateful. I, I often say, you know, I came out as LGBT, but my coming out was nowhere near as risky or as painful as it is for a person of color doing the same thing or somebody who's coming out as trans or somebody that doesn't have the socioeconomic advantages that I have had. So it's really interesting to look at, look at our diversity through that lens and realize that, you know, I got here because so many things kind of lined up for me, even though there were some things that were undoubtedly really difficult. Right. No, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think what's what's so interesting about about privilege is, you know, we need to be very deliberate in recognizing our privilege. You know, I think it's something that, you know, when you're growing up, you most people don't think about very much, but you know, as you you know, as you become an adult and you start to see the world in, you know, a, through a larger lens, you realize that, you know, just by virtue, like if I take myself, you know, being born in this country, born, you know, into a middle class family, being, you know, Caucasian, like I, I'm born on third base, right? And so we need to recognize that fact and, you know, figure out, you know, what can we do to help other people who, you know, weren't just given all of this, um, you know, all of this privilege, this kind of head start. And I think what's so interesting is that we we have this 
you know, almost cultural value or mindset of meritocracy in this country. But in your book, what one thing that I really appreciate is that you actually talk about meritocracy as being a myth. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yes, that one always gets uh, selected as a question. And honestly, every keynote I give, that question always comes up from the audience. And it, sometimes it's said by somebody who's feeling kind of under threat about the diversity and inclusion conversation. And somebody might say, well, I want to be able to hire the right person for the job, the person I think is the right person. You know, I don't want to be required to diversify my team. You know, that doesn't feel good. I, you know, they, they might believe that they've always run a meritocracy within their hiring practices. And I think that's where I'd like to challenge the belief we have that we've always been fair, <laughs> um, that we've always been objective in our hiring decisions and promotion decisions. Honestly, what we know about bias now tells us that we all are more comfortable hiring people that look like us. We're all more comfortable reaching into our, by the way, non-diverse network of friends and you know, hi, you know, filling that job with somebody that we know from social circles, so we know from our schooling. So it honestly, I don't think has ever been a meritocracy in the workplace, and that's why it's resulted that we find ourselves where we are now, which is that teams look like each other, and we have a preponderance of sameness at the top of companies. Um, sameness in terms of gender, sameness in, in terms of ethnicity, right? Just to pick two. So, so that's a product not of meritocracy. I think it's a product of our grabbing people, hiring them, saying, oh, I'm comfortable with that person. I have to hire, fill this position quickly. Let me go to my network. And my network looks like me. And, and I don't want to take a quote-unquote risk on somebody that doesn't come from the same kind of background that I can vouch for. Right? That's our subconscious monologue. So I think to hold up the meritocracy argument now is not really being, um, it's kind of in, is disingenuous. <laughs> right, right. Right? I mean, what I just described is definitely not a meritocracy. So I think, uh, yeah, so we go back and forth about this a lot with our audiences. And then there's other people who ask the question you asked, which is, how can I get my boss and my company not to say, not to use the meritocracy argument against the diversity and inclusion business case? Like, literally, it's like they're squared off against each other right now. And it's frustrating. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. And I was just going to say that I think what is what's so important to recognize about this is that people making that argument for meritocracy, you know, it's it just doesn't make any sense because the reality is, is that, you know, we do have, a, you know, an ethical, you know, I would argue an ethical and a, and a moral responsibility to help other people who haven't been given the same sort of privileges we have. But beyond that, it's a smart business decision. I mean, when you are surrounding yourself and building a team that is, you know, all just this one type of person that, you know, looks like you, acts like you, thinks like you, you're going to have an inferior product. You're going to have a product that doesn't speak to the the masses, the reality of, um, you know, what the marketplace looks like. And so by I believe that by you know creating diverse teams and and really being inclusive in the way that we are building businesses it's not just good for society it's good for the bottom line would you agree with that Oh yeah you just said it perfectly you literally said exactly what I say <laughs> Nice job <laughs> Thank you yeah. it's, it's very it's very intuitive it's not even like you should 
you shouldn't need to read that, you know, but I think a lot of people do. In fact, they are like, Jennifer, show us more data. It's like more and more and more data. And it's such a red herring. It's like, go and read it. Go use the Google. You know, there is so much (laughs) business case for diversity. Like put it in, you'll see McKinsey, Deloitte, Pew Research, all the data houses are writing about this. And you, you articulate perfectly. And I would, I would add, um, I have to make so many different creative arguments about this sometimes. Um, and it's really caused me to be, I have like a 15 different ways to convince about it. But yes, you're right. Diverse teams are more innovative. If they're managed for inclusion, you can bring a lot of diversity to your table, but you can manage it horribly and not really get great outcomes. So you have to kind of think about diversity is being asked to the table and then inclusion is being asked to, contri- to contribute and being heard when you do so. So inclusiveness is really the how. It's like how I manage diversity. How do I get the most out of diversity? And you really need both sides of the coin to achieve those innovative results. So I often try to give people that, that understanding of the difference between the two words. The other compelling, very compelling case is the marketplace is pushing on companies. You know, it is not okay to have a company's leadership look a certain way and the world that that company is doing business in look a very different way. And we know that the buying power of diverse sort of non-white female buying power um, decision makers for households, all of that is changing so rapidly. So you want, you want to reflect with your workforce the world that you are serving, the world that you're selling into, the world that you're marketing to. If you don't have the right people at the table to say, hey, we may not want to use that picture for this campaign. Or we may not want to have that content. You might think that's a brilliant idea for an ad, but it's really not. And it's going to offend a lot of people. Like it, it, There are blind spots that so many of us have. If people aren't invited to the table to give their personal first-person first viewpoint and guide us into their community in a respectful, culturally competent, and culturally humble way, um, we're going to make missteps. And so you're going to get, you're going to find yourself in the headlines. I mean, so there's a very real, there's the business case is also risk mitigation and um, being able to resonate with the world. And in the age of transparency, it is literally walking the talk with the people you hire and promote and you put into senior positions because there is no such thing as being able to hide your org chart anymore. Like we can all look into there, we can see it. And I can ask the question, why is it all men? Why are there no women? Why are there no people, visible people of color? I might ask more globally, why is there only one out Fortune 500 CEO, you know, Tim Cook? There is so much fear and hiding in the corporate workplace for LGBTQ people. 50% of us are closeted at work. Wow. So 50%. So that's a lot of fear. And that's a lot of distraction from being our best selves and reaching our potential in the workplace when we're totally hiding this huge part of who we are because we're, we don't see it. You know, we don't think that it's normalized. We don't think anybody's comfortable talking about it. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do to make sure we are, we are mirroring the world that we do business in. Um, And that's a really hard message because a lot of companies will come to us and say, oh my goodness, we just lost this giant account because our client came to us and said, you're not doing enough for diversity. We can't do business with you if your masthead looks like and they're really stuck at that moment. And they and I'm like, well, you should have been thinking about this a long time ago. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I think I think everything you're talking about, especially with the complete absence, with the exception of one person of uh, you know, LGBTQ uh, CEOs, I mean, 
it's this idea that you discuss in your book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, of people bringing their full selves to work. And, you know, I'm curious your take on this. Uh, you know, I, I actually interned at PricewaterhouseCoopers, big organization, right? And then gave up uh, a job offer there after my internship to work for a startup instead. And one thing that I noticed was that there's a massive difference in how I showed up at work in those two environments. Uh, you know, at the startup, we we weren't really afraid to be vulnerable. You know, to a large degree, we did share our full lives at work. You know, I even let tears flow in front of my boss on a couple oh. of occasions while I was there. And you know, this this just isn't something that you see at large corporate organizations. You know, certainly not something that I I would have felt comfortable doing. You know, when I was you know interning at PwC. So you know, I'm curious. One, why do you think that is? And two, you know, do you think it's a problem? Oh my gosh, um, it is a problem for yeah. sure. I mean, corporate corporate life is so formal. It's so rigid. It's so anonymous because it's so big, right? It's just the scale of the org. It's like, how do you create a sense of community and belonging when you're so big and so global? And and you're sort of having to wear a suit and tie to work every day. You're very, you know, you're very buttoned up. Your clients expect it. Um, it's really intense. It's not for everyone. And yet the companies are really worried that they're going to lose talent because of that culture and because of that, because of that very narrow definition of how we're allowed to show up. And it's kind of a self-perpetuating process too, because it, you know, I watch leaders behave this way. So then I need, I need to behave this way. And so how do we interrupt that? It's difficult when um, you know you 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 may be a part of an affinity group, which is actually a really powerful way to create some intimacy within a large company and be with your people. So you might have been a part of the women's network, and maybe you would have felt like you could bring more of your full self in that room, even if you couldn't outside of those meetings, for example. But at least you would find your people and say, "Hey, are you dealing with the same thing? Are you hearing the same stuff? Like, who's the best person to work for that really?" Is a, is a sympathetic leader to inclusion, you can have those conversations and you kind of navigate your career in a more informed way. And with the support, obviously, of other women and male allies that you know, we, we, we treasure in the workplace. And so the affinity groups are, are an important way to make these giant sort of anonymous companies that can feel very isolating, more intimate, more familiar and create a sense of belonging, which is honestly, I think what's very difficult to generate when you're a giant company. And then the startup is, is exactly the opposite, like you just said, which is it's a small family, you know, you're all kind of pulling for the same thing, you're in it together, you're, you know, you've got like, stressful, like stretch goals, and like late nights, and, you know, it's kind of unavoidable to bring your personal to that, because it's like, sort of, all for one and one for all, and you're in this like, pressure cooker. You know, there's some bad behavior that can happen in startups too, uh, which which is well documented. All you need to do is look at the tech companies and and look at the sort of fast growth um, cultures that are still male dominated. They may just be younger men, but they're still male dominated. They still have blind spots when it comes to all the things we've been talking about. Just because you're of a younger generation doesn't mean you're an inclusive leader. And that's that's like a big newsflash, but it's true. And we just assume the younger generation gets diversity and inclusion. And I often say they do on like a deeper, much deeper level than my generation did. Inclusion and diversity is something they sort of take for granted. But I think taking something for granted is also dangerous because it doesn't create itself. It doesn't mean you can never not be vigilant 
about this stuff in any workplace because because bias is going to happen all the time and we are all biased and you might be very progressive minded you might be a founder like you might be 30 years old and you're like well of course i believe in you know equality and gender equality but that that is not the same as shaping your early stage company around these values and really making intentional choices that you talk about um, and putting whatever privilege you have in play to say, you know, I want this company not just to grow fast. I don't want us to just hire as fast as we can. Anyone, anyone you can grab from your networks, like bring them on board, like be choosy about that composition in your early days, because remember your company is going to have to, when it grows and it needs to reflect the world that it does business in. And the more you let it become homogenous, which it will if you aren't careful, the, then you're growing from this place. You've set your compass in one way. And then you grow from that place. And it makes it harder and harder for, say, female talent, anyone who's underrepresented, like looking at you and saying, do I want to work there? But I don't see anyone that looks like me. And they don't seem to be talking about this. And the recruiter didn't bring it up to me. And like, I, I'm not sure I want to be there. And that's valid. So startups have to be very careful as well. I would say don't assume because you're a certain generation or a certain demographic that you're going to do this well. It takes work. It takes work. It takes attention. It takes discomfort. Sometimes it takes um, making unpopular choices that may make some people feel threatened because you're positively biasing other people because you know, as a leader, I need to positively bias this. Otherwise, I'm going to get my friend that um, Adam Fazzoni sold his sold Yammer to Microsoft for like gazillions of dollars, and his second startup is called Able, which is an educational um, software company for educational systems, so schools. And he literally said in building his founding team, I cannot interview anyone that looks like me, and he's a straight white guy. Wow! That if I let anybody, and by the way, I'm getting flooded by people that look like me. If I let any of them into the interview pipeline. That's all we're going to end up hiring. So I, I only want to interview this demographic, this demographic, this demographic. I know it's radical. It is radical. But the thing is, the way corporate is doing it is so incremental that we're just not going to see progress at the rate that we need to see it. So, you know, I know corporate doesn't like radical strategies, but the companies that are doing the right things are starting to require diverse slates, for example. They're starting to say, you must have at least one woman and one person of color in every interview round at the director level and above, for example. And that's, that's good. And I'm sad to say, does it take it being required? Sadly, yes. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, this is the conundrum we live with, which is what gets measured gets done. We wish that people's sense of the business case, the moral argument, all the things we talked about earlier would be enough to compel them to make different choices. Or that, you know, we are so in a way powerless against our biases. They will repeat themselves <laughs> even when we don't want them to. And so sometimes it takes um, requirements like that. Sometimes it takes technology like Textio. Textio is a tool that combs through job descriptions and performance reviews and literally highlights gendered words that keep keep away certain demographics. So it will tell you that ninja and rockstar aren't, when you're looking for coders, those words repel female candidates. It's like the data shows that. It's fascinating. And again, we're powerless with our bias. Like we will repeat our biases over and over, even the best intended of us. So, you know, we've got to rely on these other tools 
to teach in a way to teach us to ourselves, <laughs> hey, you're biased here, you're biased here, you didn't think about this, you didn't question this, you didn't notice this. You need to start to really be vigilant. If tech can help you do that, if requirements and your performance and your comp is on the line to make you do it, like I'll take it because it's not happening just through the goodwill of people. Right, right. And and I love what you said about about being well-intentioned because I think, you know, if, if you're listening to this interview and you're recognizing, you know, Oh my gosh, I, you know, I run this startup and my team is all, you know, white men or you know whatever it might be. First of all, you know, be kind to yourself. Recognize that, you know, it it's not necessarily something that you did intentionally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so so, you know, approach approach yourself with kindness, but then take action steps to make a change and recognize that you're not only doing that for the benefit of your internal organization, but you're also doing it for the benefit of, you know, the business's longevity and, you know, your ability to remain relevant in the marketplace and to avoid the kinds of missteps like you mentioned that, you know, we see over and over and over again. Um, you know, it's funny when, when you were talking about risk management, what popped into my head was, you know, I was just reading an article the other day about Kim Kardashian's kimono um, shapewear line that you know she ended up changing the name after this big backlash. And you know, we see these things happen constantly. And the only way that you know we're going to be able to you know avoid these kinds of uh, Poor publicity and also just uh, expensive missteps is by creating inclusive teams from the start. That's right, and you don't want to wait until it's too late <laughs> because it's. I almost feel like saying it's going to happen to you. Like something's going to happen. Yeah. Something's happened to you, or as a leader, you know, internally, or it may happen to you publicly. Um, you're going to make a misstep. Like that's almost a guarantee. And so, the question becomes. Do you need to work ahead of the test? You know, you need to do your homework. You need to perform the hygiene of an inclusive organization and and what it needs to do to ask the right questions to make the choices before the emergency. Really, it's risk mitigation ahead of that, knowing that it's a very sensitive time. We're very polarized. There's a lot of calling out going on. Um, what you just talked about with the kimono is called cultural appropriation for folks in your audience that don't know, but that's what you're referencing, right? which is a super duper sensitive area right now. And please Google that, know what it means. It may sort of make you feel uncomfortable or maybe confused when you read about it and, and will lead to a lot more questions <laughs> because it's a very complicated area. However, just it's, it's an example of language that you, you in this world, you kind of need to know what a cultural appropriation means. You need to know what pronouns mean and why they're significant. Um, you need to know um, how to be inclusive in your language. I mean, for my executive leaders, I often, I say, if you remember nothing else, please remember, you know, don't say, I don't see color as a way of, of indicating your good intent and your commitment to equality. And, and I get a lot of quizzical looks to say, well, that's what I was taught to say. And I get that. That was a different time. And it was the right thing for that time. I mean, that was the rallying cry, perhaps, of baby boomers in the civil rights movement, Right. I'm sort of colorblind or I'm genderblind or I look at women the same way I look at men. I want to give everybody opportunities. Yes. But what we now talk about is equity. And the equity lens is a lens through which we acknowledge that the starting line was not an equal one. We acknowledge that some folks, it is not an equal playing field and some folks have had a much harder time 
depending on their identities or their intersectionality, which is another word I would really recommend everybody Google and try to understand. But the the implications of diverse or underrepresented idea, identities, when you bring that into the workplace and you try to bring your full self to work, it is not always well received. And that's like a big newsflash for a lot of the leaders I work with, because the assumption is everybody feels comfortable like I do, or everybody, you know, everybody's having the same experience that I do. And so I just have to take people through the data that shows like there's a really an excellent study by McKinsey called Women in the Workplace. And they do it with Lean In and they do it every couple of years. And it's just excellent. And it will like, you will be flabbergasted. Whether you're a white man or a man, you'll be amazed at the reports by women of what it feels like to be in the workplace, you know, um, navigating the headwinds. And then if you're a white person, you'll find the, the stories and data around women of color are really powerful. And again, are very different from white women. And so I really love the study because it takes, it comes from an intersectional lens. And that's part of our learning that it's not the same for all of us. And just because you're in an, in a marginalized group, by the way, there's diversity within the diversity. So, you know, I, as a, as a white, cis, gay woman, have so much to learn about the experience of people within the LGBTQ community that identify differently than I do and that need my allyship if I can, if I can manage to be called an ally for the trans community, for people of color in my community. Even for women, women are marginalized in the LGBTQ community, interestingly, in the corporate space often, where we are sort of very unseen so it's a very, there's gender dynamics that are going on of inclusion and exclusion within that community in the workplace that show up in the affinity groups and then who's in leadership positions and who gets, you know, who ends up being that out executive. It's probably a white guy out executive. You know, it's a Tim Cook. It's no accident that it's a Tim Cook. That's the out gay guy, Fortune 500, right? So there are the trailblazers, but there's many more of us that need to kind of make it through that pipeline that don't look like Tim Cook. Exactly. Well, and, and just like you said, I mean, just starting to dive into this topic, it opens the door to so many more questions. And so, you know, I would just encourage anyone listening right now who is a leader, whether it be of your team, of your organization, to go right now and pick up Jennifer's book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, because not only is this topic just you know, so critical in today's day and age, but it's going to make your organization stronger when you embrace this kind of understanding and the action that comes from it. So, you know, Jennifer, I want to thank you for everything that you've shared with us. But, you know, as we wrap up the show, I'm really interested to ask you, um, you know, about something else that that you did recently. See, the, the common thread of guests on this show is really the commitment to giving back and generosity. And I know that you not only contribute regularly to LGBTQ grassroots organizations, but you also organized a free one-day conference for LBTQ women back in June. So as we wrap up here, could you just tell me a little bit more about this event and why it was so meaningful to you to put on? Sure. And I was so happy to put, gosh, over 100 hours, maybe maybe 150 hours, I'm not sure into this. Um, my role was to source the content and speakers. And so make sure that we had the most um, amazing and yet like very diverse, like very successful um, grassroots leaders, activists, mid-career women, trans women, military women. Um, we had just an incredible array of almost 30 speakers. And if anybody wants to check out who we, who we got together, it's on lbtqwomen.org. You'll still see all the headshots up there of the of the um, agenda, 
And um, it was for Stonewall 50th anniversary. It was during World Pride Week in New York, which was, oh my goodness, so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still like resting from that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we had almost, almost 300 folks uh, register for the conference. It was hosted by Microsoft. And um, it was a one-day conference where we talked about our LBTQ identities, how those show up for us in our careers, what our intersectionality stories are, and what it meant, what it has meant to be a part of the community, but also carry other um, marginalized identities. Right. So, why I had a big commitment to have lots of women of color on the stage, trans women, um, gender non-binary individuals, and also not just white collar and corporate, but um, entrepreneurial women nonprofit advocates and activists. And it was just um, an incredible rep- representation of our community. We can always do better. And I, you know, I think we, we, we learned a lot about what it means to bring this group together. But I'll, I will tell you that the biggest takeaway is the need is enormous. The appetite for women to gather is so enormous because of the things I was talking about earlier, which is that some of spaces for LGBTQ people tend to be male-dominated, tend to be white-dominated and um, tend to be cisgender dominated as well. And maybe even white collar, I would argue, at least the space, like a lot that I run in. And so a conference was really needed to broaden that and to build it and they will come and they definitely came. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it was just great. And uh, we talked about storytelling. We talked about the future of advocacy. We had some incredible decision makers and people who are actually guiding advocacy organizations to the future. And I'll tell you, the future is of this movement. If it starts with Black trans women, just to pick one group who's who's extremely adversely impacted right now, in particular in our climate, whether it's in the military um, for physical safety, for job opportunities, um, economically, physically, health wise, we often think if we start from a certain community and we build up up and around from there, we will hit everybody's everybody's challenges in the process, but we've come from this kind of other identity and then we've built from there and we end up missing a lot of people from the conversation. So I, I really learned like how to, I, I, I'm very thinking a lot about centering the stories of certain, certain folks that are not listened to, not heard, not given the stage. And that we, a lot of us need to do a lot of listening right now. So the conference, I think, really achieved that. It was just a day and there was so much more we can do. And I was inundated with speaker um, offers and ideas and people that wanted to present. And and so we're out there. We're writing books. We're running companies. We're successful entrepreneurs. We're chief executive officers, not in the Fortune 500. (laughs) But, you know, we are there. It's just that um, we're such an invisible community, even to ourselves. That, and I think that's that's a very common experience for a lot of underrepresented communities in the workplace, which is where I focus. And, you know, the goal is to even just to find each other. And then once we find each other to talk about our experience and then to find our voice and then to use our voice and then to um, get on bigger and bigger platforms to to show our stories because others need to see us. If we're underrepresented and we're not talking about ourselves and our experience, then we're missing out on inspiring all of the next generation who really desperately needs to see us because we're so few and far between. And many of us are invisible. Our diversity dimension is invisible. So as, as gay women, so it's just really interesting. Um, making that visible was, was critical. And um, I expect a lot more conferences. So if you have any listeners who are interested, please, please get on the mailing list of lbtqwomen.org. 
um, so that you can stay posted on, on what we do. And please um, keep tabs and get involved. We'd love to have you. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for for all of that. As you were talking, it, it made me think about a another podcast host who said to me during a conversation how he, you know, really wished that he could have more women on his show, but that he, you know, wasn't willing to and I quote, lower his standards of who he'll bring on as a guest in order to get more women. And it was absolutely horrifying to me at the time. But I think <laughs> listening to you share about this conference, it's like wake up like these I know right these <laughs> there are people we're here yeah like we're out there you just need to open your eyes and put in like even a minuscule amount of effort minuscule like it's really not that much come on uh, yeah. like, and that's the new book really like this my new book is for those folks honestly it's perfect for people who find this all of this very overwhelming and feel like they're kind of being led to the water but they don't want to drink kind of thing i really wrote it with those folks in mind to say hey the water's warm. Like, <laughs> come on. In. Like, I'm not going to shame you. This work is actually good for you and will make you a better leader, better human, you're, you increase your results at work, allow you to sort of feel that you're on the train of progress, you know, because, because the world is changing and you don't want to miss it. And I, I just worry for people that are missing this and are downplaying the importance of it because the world is changing. It has changed, actually. Like, it's at our doorstep. So you can deny the evolution that's happening, but at your peril. So I really, I make all those arguments in the book and I, and I try to write it, write it patiently because this stuff kind of gets me fired up too. <laughs> really kind of challenging to write and be like, and sort of spoon feeding information. But in the consulting world, we like to say, meet the client where they're at, you know, and you might be at the 3.0 level of your understanding and your wants and desires and your vision for change. But really, we can't afford to leave a lot of people behind as we sort of sprint forward. And I was really thinking about that a lot when I wrote the book and said, I need to go into, into the burning house and wake people up and say, I need to get you out of here. Come with me and come see what's on the other side because this house won't exist in the future. Like it's going to burn down <laughs> and you can either stay there and asleep or you can come and join and learn and grow and be challenged. And by the way, find like a level of joy that maybe you've never experienced before because diversity is a celebration. It is literally the most interesting, fascinating, amazing opportunity of our lifetimes. And it's happening like right now all around us. It's all around us at work. So we can look at that as a chore or we can look at it as a beautiful blessing. Well, I can't think of a better place to end than there, Jennifer. So before we say goodbye, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, about your business, and of course, to pick up the book? Oh, yes. Thank you so much. So it's on Amazon releasing August 20th. So I'm really very excited. Um, it is audiobook as well. So I took many hours to record that because it's important for me that this content is accessible to all. And I kind of loved it because I used to be a voiceover artist. So <laughs> it was kind of fun for me, believe it or not. Not a chore. And then I'm on Jennifer Brown Speaks on Instagram. And that is also my uh, one of my websites is Jennifer Brown Speaks, where you can access our podcast content. And the podcast is called The Will to Change. You can also listen to it on iTunes or wherever else you consume your podcast content. And then um, Jennifer Brown Consulting. We haven't talked a lot today about my amazing team. But we have an entire team of consultants and we're constantly doing 
engagements around diversity strategy and training. So that's on Jennifer Brown Consulting. And then Twitter handle, I'm at Jennifer Brown. I Yes, I've been on Twitter over a decade. So I got my name. Awesome. <laughs> but that's at Jennifer Brown. And then Jennifer Brown Consulting is, I think, where you find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. So visit us at all of the above. Join our mailing list. Um, if you want to send us an, an email, send us an email at info at jenniferbrownconsulting.com. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's been just so insightful and a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to genuinely thank you for giving me this gift of your time and attention. I know how valuable that is. And so it truly means the world to be able to spread this message with you. Now, if you are getting value from this podcast, the most helpful thing you can do is to leave a five-star review and share this with your friends. Post a screenshot to your Instagram stories or even text the link to someone specific that you think would find value in this also. So with that, I hope this episode has inspired you to do well and do good. And I'll see you back here next week.